Hello, I'm the Pink Phantom, and this is my podcast. Join me as I delve into the world of games and gaming, and especially old school RPGs. Together, let's voyage into the astral realm and check out my Phantom Call. In this episode, I respond to a call from Evil Jeff, cover another section of Muster, advice for playing D&D in the wargaming way, and we have more Tales of the Dragon Slayers. So let's get to it. Phantom, it's Evil Jeff. So you had to start talking about me. Well, actually, Jason brought me up, but uh, I want to give a little rebuttal to your last comment on the contact poison. And I, I'm still under the opinion that it is a trap no matter what. You know, there's no reason to have contact poison on there. Now, contact poison that was on the container, possibly being on the treasure. Okay, well, then hopefully our adventurers have seen that, and I can understand accidental doing things. But purposely putting contact poison on there tells me that either you're being a bastard and nobody's ever going to touch your stuff. Oh, they're immune to the poison? Okay, but you still put it on there for what reason? Nobody's ever going to touch your stuff. But if you're ever going to spend it or have to use it, then you have to get rid of the poison unless you're an evil person. And then you probably bag it up and, yeah, paid for something and then let them go off and then they get contact poison. But then, you know, after a number of times of that, pretty certain you're going to have a hard time doing any business. So, I mean, there is that to be said. I think the point I really wanted to get across is that any treasure, any monies, gems, whatever, things that could be spent, if contact poison is put on there and it is something that is going to be used at some point, it has to be gotten rid of. And I argue, why is it there in the first place? If you've got that much thievery around that you've got to put poison on things, maybe we need to find some other way to, you know, protect treasure or, you know, associate with different set of people. Or maybe you're just being malicious and, you know, you know, people are going to steal. So after enough times of it, somebody's going to get the word out and say, well, touch his shit and you die. You never know how. Then I can understand that. But. I just it I find it difficult to say that that is not a trap on purpose. And I believe that it just comes from adversarial GMs that are trying to screw players instead of, hey, let's uh, come up with a logical reason as to why any of this is here. Granted, you want to be gonzo? I guess that works for me, too. Why contact poison? Why any trap that protects your treasure? Because you don't want people to steal it. And poison sends a message, certainly. If enough people die because they stole treasure from you, then people get the message. And that's not just true of contact poison. That's true if you hire assassins to hunt them down. If you if they get killed in a bottomless pit, if they just disappear every time somebody comes into your stronghold to get after your treasure, um, 
Why poison? Well, I mean, it's pretty cheap. You you apply it, and then until you clean it off, you don't have to do anything else. So it would cost less than constantly paying guards to stand around guarding your treasure or modifying or building a structure with an elaborate lock system or elaborate trap system to do that. I mean, you know, why was the rolling boulder trap in the temple in Indiana Jones? It had to be there for a reason. I don't know exactly what. I mean, hopefully the people that use that temple on a regular basis when it wasn't an ancient ruin knew it was there and therefore knew how to bypass it or safeguard it so that it didn't go off when they were in the treasure room. If they needed to get the idol off the statue, they knew how to deactivate the trap. And the same thing with poison, you would know, I poisoned the treasure, so I need to take these measures. This is the poison I use, and this is the way you neutralize it. I don't think it's any more adversarial DM than any other kind of instantly deadly trap uh, that you'd find, whether it's poison darts or a rolling boulder or a spike-filled pit. In all those cases, it's going to be you roll a die, and if you fail the die roll, you die. (laughs) You fail the die roll because you didn't find the pit trap, because you activated the pit trap and you fall in. You failed the die because you didn't notice the pressure plate that set off the dart trap. You get hit by the, the dart, you die. You rifle through poison-covered treasure, and you fail the save, you die. Is it more adversarial? Was it probably adversarial when it was put in? Well, given what some folks have said about Gary Gygax, probably. <laughs> I mean, there's certainly enough uh, creatures in the monster manual, like the Rust Monster and the Disenchanter, that are obviously there to relieve players of their hard-worn equipment and their magical items, So, and spells that are created to overcome a specific issue that have names attached to them. So, well, Gary put this situation in and his players figured out a way to overcome it. And then this spell exists. I mean, think about shield and magic missile. Magic missile is a spell which automatically hits you every time. And shield is a spell which it increases your armor class in different circumstances. But most specifically, it always negates magic missile. That's just the way the game was played back then. It was a more, adversarial gotcha kind of game on both sides and by all accounts Gary at least in that portion of his life was a very gotcha gotcha uh oh you came up with a smart way to overcome more easily the puzzle or monster or circumstance I put you in than what I like so I'm going to find a way to easily neutralize what you did so Probably adversarial, but I think there could be reasons. And I don't know. I don't see it being any worse than any other kind of trap or circumstance that is deadly that players find themselves in in the game. That's my opinion.
but thank you for the call. Uh, I always love hearing from you. I always love hearing your opinions on such things on your podcast. And uh, a link to Evil Jess podcast Minions Musing will be in the show notes for everyone else. So check that out. In this week's chapter of Muster, a primer for war, advice for playing D&D in the wargaming way, the uh, book turns to party management on page 115. In the wargaming way, we do not focus on creating an immersive fantasy persona that the player enjoys inhabiting. That's a different kind of role-playing game altogether. In this game, player characters are unique circumstances of play, tool sets you use to overcome various scenarios, and lessons what works and what doesn't. Character management logic is necessarily fairly different in most games. The character stable. When we're figuring out what to play next in the campaign, often there are some reasons you do not want to bring your main guy into the next scenario, so you just create a new character and play that instead. Over time, this process comes out to a stable, a store of characters that the player has created over time. The reason to jump characters may be a whimsy of game fiction, strategic on the part of the player, hard positioning thing, or anything else. Character stables are a good thing because they reduce artifice in campaign maneuvering. Campaign maneuvering. You don't need to invent elaborate stories about why these same characters keep adventuring together, even when you'd expect them not to. Stables also make character losses more survivable because the player has a fallback position. In scenario formation, in scenario formation, players have a subjective right to play which means that the referee doesn't go out of their way to justify why the player can't field their character and join the fun. But the conceit of character stabling is there to form the ultimate fallback when negotiations stall. If it's difficult for some reason to convince your character to go on an adventure, make a new one who will. It is that easy. Stepping outside the text for a moment, uh, uh, practitioners of OSR play will also point out that character stables are very useful for campaigns that use one-to-one time, where downtime from the actual adventure passes one day to one day in the real world, and where it's a lot of times you'll hear the discussion of of characters becoming time locked because their excursions outside of adventuring, because whether it's some kind of research or some sort of a personal project or maybe they're romancing someone those will take more time than will have passed for many other characters when those characters go on the next adventure and so they are time locked where they can't be used and so a stable of characters gives you a character to use instead it's also useful in what's known as sandbox play and uh drop in drop out play where you have maybe large groups of people that play in a group. You may have people that join the group for a short time or just join for one session to see what it's like. And having a stable of characters can also give you a character to loan to a new player that doesn't know a lot about the game to help them get used to the idea before they make their own character. If you don't want to walk them through making their own character, if there's someone that show up at the last minute, somebody brings a friend to the session. That sort of thing. Getting back to the book. Start at first level. New characters start at first level. 
This is important because it makes accomplished characters valuable and exceptional, and encourages natural variety in party composition. Modern D&D generally advises replacing dead characters with new characters of the same level, but that utterly ruins the great accomplishment of even reaching the second level. Don't do that. When new characters start at first level, the campaign does not need to be conceived as a constant progression towards higher levels of power. Rather, the campaign consists of runs of advancement that inevitably end sooner or later. A sense of scale is retained when your play naturally varies over the level range, following the vagaries of adventure or fate. Characters who retire or die and are replaced by new adventurers are what keep the events real. I question the existence of resurrection magic in the game. I question it heavily, and it has not generally been part of my campaigns. To me, it seems to be nothing more than a way to transition from the wargaming way to a different game, one where player characters are too big to fail. Parties vary in level. If another player has a character at level 4, that doesn't mean that the game is failing when yours is at level 1. The game works just fine with a natural variety in this regard, and is in fact more fun because you get to strategize over a variety of circumstances. Note that the old-school exponential character advancement math ensures that lower-level characters catch up when adventuring together with higher-level ones, provided they survive. Character stables, varying party adventuring party composition, character deaths, as well as various XP losses, and the exponential progression mean that the level hierarchy is not some permanent playgroup pyramid. Sometimes you are at a lower level, and sometimes at a higher level than the rest of the party. It is very natural in play to have the party with a single character of higher level, leading an entourage of first levelers. That's how adventure fiction often plays out, and it's a fun setup in play as well. Party Roles One of the unusual characteristics of D&D is that it defaults to a cooperative team exercise. Most games tend to have individual turns where everything else grinds to a halt while each player deliberates their own actions. In D&D, most of the time, the entire party maneuvers, and the players do not have turns. Stepping outside the text for a moment, this plays out a lot in combat when you use the players declaring actions section. Uh, players declaring actions before combat actually begins, or before the round, each round of combat actually begins. And that gives the players time to act not just decide what their individual characters are going to do, but discuss a little bit with each other what the party is going to try to accomplish as a whole, and then you roll initiative and go from there. So that's kind of an advantage of doing side, side initiative and declaring actions before the round even gets underway. Moving back to the text. Uh, I left off with, and players do not have turns. What this implies for party management is that the players form a natural participation hierarchy where the more skilled and motivated players do most of the playing, while the shy and passive players are more along for the ride, ride contributing less to the decision-making. Some players find this frustrating because their turn never comes. They have difficulty realizing that the turn was inside them all along. For most, though, my experience is that the natural activity hierarchy is a strength of the game. It allows newcomers to ease into the game with low-stakes participation, and nobody needs to sit the game out because of their skill level. If you don't feel like putting in too much effort today, you can just lean back and let the others play while still nevertheless 
being fully present and available if something particularly challenging comes up. At the high end, the players can put about as much effort and skill into it as they can without worrying about others keeping up. While you can work on the team ethos and individual player skills by encouraging role swapping and trying new things, the game's nature is that everybody finds their own preferred way to participate. It would be ideal to let that happen. So stepping outside the text again, this is interesting how, you know, mixing what's happening in the game with how people are, whether it's because they're new to the game or just their personalities and how those two things can kind of work together to operate in a wargaming context in an RPG. Moving back to the text. Parties can be big. While I encourage in Encourage limiting each player to a single player character at a time. Nothing in particular prevents the adventurers from hiring non-player characters, allies, hirelings, retainers, henchmen, minions, sidekicks, whatever. There is no game balance that would break from an investigation of the possibilities of forming a real adventuring company capable of tackling challenging expeditions. Real people do not engage in dangerous, uncertain projects in foreign parts with a party of three or four people. And the reasons for that would apply in the simulated gaming world as well. So stepping outside the text again for a minute, this would equate the wargaming way more with, say, uh, an expedition to climb Mount Everest or to find the North Pole or to delve into a deep, a deep jungle region of unexplored territory as opposed to a handful of plucky folks attempting to do one thing or another. And you do see this even in, say, something like uh, Indiana Jones movies, where for big portions of the movie, it's Indiana Jones and one or two or three other people acting. He also will uh, bring in others. There'll be specialists that, you know, pilot or a group to help him move from one area to another. Or say in Raiders of the Lost Ark, when Indiana Jones uh, gets together a large crew to help dig for the Ark in the correct place. Things like that. So getting back to the book here. A game's scoring logic naturally penalizes over-budgeting operations. Allowing players to have a real say in what they're fielding for any given scenario makes negotiated scenario balance easier to achieve, which makes for exciting gameplay. I cannot say for certain, but my current belief is that mid-tiers, the adventuring party naturally shrinks back down. The adventures become far too dangerous for non-heroic party members, which leaves only the one-player character per player again. I like to think that the way Dungeon Fantasy imagines adventuring parties as these intimate affairs of a couple of best friends and a nice elf girl is specifically depicting mid-tier heroic adventures. At low-tier, madness. Multiple parties. With character stables, there is no reason whatsoever why the campaign would have to keep the following the same party from scenario to scenario. To the contrary, it is common at mid-levels for parties to break up for all kinds of reasons, often leaving individual adventurers to form new parties with new first-level allies, so that all players end up with multiple characters hanging out with different fellow adventurers, all part of the process. I think of briefly stepping outside the text again. I immediately thought of the Lord of the Rings when I thought of this, when I read this the first time, thinking about 
they started off with a fairly sizable group and then they split up going in different directions. But back to the book. The main campaign management reason to keep some throttle on this process of heroic adventures spreading out into the setting is that it forces you to choose where to focus play and which adventures to follow in detail. The players only have so much playtime to devote to the process after all. So the thing to do is to use summary downtime processes to define positioning and find adventures and then move campaign attention between the variously interesting adventurers and parties as interest beckons. When some adventurer goes to do their own thing and we just never get around to playing any further adventures with them for whatever reason, that's not such a problem. It's the natural consequence of us having something more interesting on our plate week to week. They're essentially retired now as we never seem to get around to having them adventure, yeah? In the final section of this chapter, player versus player play. A natural consequence of the extended campaign ideal of finding adventuring opportunities based on how adventurers position themselves is that sometimes player characters end up on different sides of the same issue. One is hired by a king to run security, say, while the other is hired by a pretender to assassinate that king. Very fun situations, full of gaming potential, but also very intense for the players. The technical issue with PvP play in D&D is that in the basic game, the players learn to trust each other and work together against the merciless dungeon. So anything that throws this arrangement topsy-turvy can be deeply upsetting. It's even worse when a player decides to turn on an ally for bad reasons. Bad strategy, bad portrayal of their adventurer. Because you're not playing with perfect people, sometimes skills fall short. It is understandably frustrating to be on the receiving end of a fit like that when it's so difficult to build success and so easy to sabotage another player. The one thing you shouldn't do, either as a character player or referee, is ambushing the other players with party betrayal. If you haven't explicitly talked about it in advance, then you assume that it is not okay, and the other players are in fact assuming that the adventurers are faction by definition, in the same sense that a football team is supposed to play together and not betray the other. But then, on the other hand, PvP scenarios are really fun. This is how classical wargaming actually was structured. You would have two players on opposite sides with the referee acting as a neutral third party to adjudicate the maneuvers in the two sides against each other. I always try to make this work when a campaign suggests authentic P P PvP situations, but you must ask before just throwing yourself into it. I absolutely won't blame anybody for just assuming that the adventurers aren't allowed to betray each other. A given campaign's table rules might allow or disallow small betrayal and big betrayal. It's all fine as long as you hash it out with the group. I've refereed for parties that hold court-martial with ex executions for traitors, entirely organic PvP that is, and I've refereed for parties who explicitly forbid any kind of betrayal. Parties where characters steal from each other and parties they engage in long campaign arcs of maneuver and counter-maneuver against each other. Player characters have been relinquished to be used as opposition force villains and players have conspired with the referee to set up entire adventures for each other. They're all legit games, and it's a good example of how you can set up wargaming scenarios with a different focus. And that finishes up that chapter. Uh, so stepping away from the text one final time, uh, you know, PvP can be a sub touchy subject in the role-playing world. There are some people that say absolutely not ever, and there are some people that indulge in it in reckless abandon to the extent that they'll do it at, at the drop of a hat and maybe without giving anyone any heads up ahead of time, which 
can lead to conflict within the group, not just in the game world, but at the actual table. But it, you know, as the author says, it is the basis of wargaming is one player versus another player, or one group of players against another group of players, usually in a battle scenario. It's understood ahead of time in those situations that it's going to happen. So it's really the element of surprise and how much does it have to be part of the game and and how will that affect the relationships above the table is really the, is really the big thing. If it's not going to hurt those, then it can be a positive thing. So that's going to conclude that part of muster. Uh, we're moving through the book pretty pretty steadily here. We're up into the one twenties. Uh, the content goes through basically page two hundred, and then there's some appendices. I don't know how much of the appendices I'll get into because some of it is just terms and things like that. There's a couple stories in there. I made the decision beforehand I wasn't really going to go through a lot of the stories. They're good examples. That's one of the reasons I recommend uh, getting the book since it's for free. So. Uh, Thank you for listening, and uh, we're going to move on to Tales of the Dragon Slayers. And now, more from my solo AD&D RPG campaign, Tales of the Dragon Slayers. Day 108, since the start of the Red Dragon's Rampage. Delve number 5 into the first level of the dungeon that the party is attempting to make its headquarters. Party members, Sir Gus. First level cleric, paladin, human. Edgar, human, first level, ranger, druid. Cudgel, human, first level, fighter, magic user. Bernie, elven, first level, fighter, magic user, thief. Sven, first level, halfling, fighter. Harl, human, first level, ranger. Quinn, human, first level, ranger. Prier, first level, human, paladin. Michael, first level, human, fighter. The party returns to the chamber southeast of the Hobgoblin's former lair, just south of the entryway to the keep. They take the south exit and turn west. The hall extends 100 feet to a 30 by 30 foot chamber with three other other exits, one in each of the cardinal directions. They take the north corridor to a seemingly dead end, but discover secret doors on both the east and west side at the end of the corridor. They spike these shut and return to take the west corridor from that chamber. They enter, they move 30 feet and enter a vast high ceiling hexagonal chamber of roughly 5,400 square feet. They are surprised by a flock of bats, which buzzes the party, causing their torches to go out. After the party recovers, they discover a small coffer. Bernie has to make a poison save on opening the coffer. We really need to bring some rags if everything's going to be covered in poison, he grumbles. In the coffer, they find a map. During a long search of the room, three fire beetles enter. There's a very quick battle, and Bernie and Gus squish two of them, and Cudgel's staff disintegrates the third. The party takes the lone exit to the west. The passage goes for 30 feet and then turns north, and the side passage branches off 20 feet in. 
but the party continues on 30 more feet north into the southwest corner of an unusually shaped chamber, 60 feet by 30 feet, with a 40-foot square foot offset to the south, which is straight on the west and south walls with a diagonal going northeast wall. There they encounter 12 orcs. The orcs grab their weapons in advance due to a horrible reaction roll, but the party reacts quicker, winning initiative. The orcs are not able to harm the party, but refuse to give up, morale saves, and the party wipes them out. The party finds evidence, detritus, torn clothing, mangled equipment, that more orcs had been present. In game terms, this means that the orcs are now a lair monster, meaning there's many more of them scattered throughout this level and probably other levels of the dungeon, along with the dwarves, the gnomes, the the kobolds and berserkers and other creatures on the ever more specific random encounter table that will be used until they sort of run out. Searching the orcs, they find Electrum, and searching the room scattered around, they find gems, silver, a ring, and a halfling-sized suit of field plate armor. They also locate secret doors to the north and east. The north door opens up into a previously explored area of the dungeon. The east door opens into a hall that goes 20 feet into a 20-foot by 20-foot chamber. The only exit goes further east. After about 30 feet, a side hall opens southwest. Checking their map, they follow the side hall 20 feet. It turns east 20 feet and stops at one of the secret doors they had spiked. They return to the main corridor and go an additional 20 feet east into a 60-foot by 30-foot triangular room. They find another small coffer, Bernie Ponders, then retreats to the orc room to get some cloth to wipe it with, but still ends up making a poison save. In it, they find another map. They find the other south door, the other secret door that they had spiked, but no other exits. The party returns west all the way through the orc room and turns south. As they reach the west side passage they had bypassed, a dull rumble alerts them just before a bowler rolls down the hall and hits Gus. And a bowler, for anyone that doesn't know, is a essentially a creature that is a boulder, and it does damage by running into you. And it hits Gus. Cudgel disintegrates it, and a small barrel gem falls out of it. The party then follows the west side passage 30 feet and finds a secret door along the north wall. As the hall turns south, they follow, the, they follow the hall south to a dead end and find nothing and then return to the secret door. They enter a 30-foot by 30-foot room and they encounter a chaotic evil party. But the reaction is positive. After, dis- after a discussion, that group agrees to be escorted out of the dungeon. The party does though th- through the secret door in the orc room that leads into the previous section to get them more quickly into the hands of their troops and out of the keep. Returning to that room, they find an iron trunk the Chaotic Evil Party had been debating about opening. Bernie finds and disarms a poison needle trap, and the party finds silver and a gem. 
a search reveals a secret door to the north. In the 50-foot by 30-foot room beyond, they find a, a, another magic pool. The longer-tenured party members let Prier and Michael know how badly a previous pool had treated Cudgel. Cudgel concludes the discussion by nudging Gus. You did well last time, big, duck, big guy. And Gus, with a deep breath, steps in. As he immerses in the water, a brilliant white light streams over him. Exiting the pool, the others wait expectantly until Bernie asks, Well, I feel much fitter, Gus replies. No voices, said Cudgel. And after a pause, I'm trying. Again, the light flows. I feel stronger. The others all look at one another, and as Bernie heads for the pool, the others join him. The white light flows over Bernie, Finn, Edgar, Harl, and Quinn. But a different, duller light encompasses Prier and Michael. As they step out, Michael declares, I think I've lost some lateral movement. With alarm in his eyes, Pryor replies, I've lost much more. What this pool does is it adds or subtracts three points to a random ability score one time. So what I did was I took two differently colored six-sided dice and rolled them together. One die on a one, two, or three, it would subtract that many points. On a four, five, or six, it would add one, two, or three points. And the other one just indicated by D6 which of the six ability scores it would affect. Uh, the the sort of the original members of the party actually all got bonuses of one kind or another. Uh, the two newcomers did not. They lost. Uh, in case of Michael Dexterity, in case of Prayer, he lost three uh, points of intelligence, which actually now makes him. Well, it makes him ineligible to be a cavalier, and since I've been using the Unearthed Arcana rules, that would also make him ineligible to be a paladin. So he's essentially lost his paladinhood here. Which is interesting, because uh, in the original, in, in just, just using the player's handbook, uh, paladins only need a 9 intelligence, and it reduced his intelligence to 9. But going by Unearthed Arcana, where paladins are a subclass of cavaliers, Cavaliers have to have a 10 intelligence. So it's interesting there, that little change. And I, I've been wondering if it should, should it affect him being a paladin? If paladins, I mean, could paladins still be with nine? So I'm interested in playing that out. I'm not sure exactly how. It's probably something I'll cover in the next podcast, what I've come up with to, to deal with that. In any case, Gus counsels the distraught prayer. When we finish out this day, we will commune with your deity. And perhaps another pool we have found can help. Prayer nods. The party returns through the hexagonal chamber to the first 20 by 20 foot chamber this section. They go north and unspike the secret doors since they've uncovered what's on either side of them. And then explore the final side passage. The hall goes 30 feet south and then turns east 30 feet. It ends in a 30-foot by 30-foot room. There they find nine bandits. The reaction is mostly positive. 
and like the chaotic evil party, they agree to be escorted out. They are surprised when the party does a search and finds a secret door to the south. A 10 by 10 foot room reveals a metal urn with a jar of ointment and a scimitar. The party then escorts the bandits back to the base to their base of operations. Arriving back home, their men at arms took custody of the bandits to escort them out of the keep. As they left, they diverted around Captain Idle as he approached the party. Today is your day for cleaning out the riffraff, he noted wryly to Sir Gus. The smile from his jest faded as he saw Gus's face. Gus saw the response. We encountered another magical pool. Most of us benefited, but our two newest did not. Prier may have lost his paladinhood. For good? Idol whispered. Unknown, Gus responded tight-lipped. I'm hoping appealing to his immortal sponsor will help. Or possibly the other pool. Idol nodded. For the risk of adding to your burdens, we've had a development here as well. The volume of his voice rose until all the companions were paying attention. Then he stepped aside, revealing, Katya! Bernie exclaimed, and the original members rushed to greet her with bear hugs and arm clasps. Gus beckoned for Prayer and Michael to introduce them. As the group fraternized, Sven looked up and exclaimed, There's a lot of men here. Idle grinned at the halfling. Katya brought the rest of the troops with her. We're at full strength. Excellent, Gus nodded. Let's see to our friend Prier, and tomorrow we will plan for the coming days. But first, we wash and dine. So with that, the party's delves into the dungeon will probably be postponed for at least one of their days. That leaves us with figuring out how to deal with prayer, and is there a way to reverse the effects of the pool? Can the wishing pool do it? Will his deity intervene? These are some things I have some ideas about, but haven't fully plotted out a possible path. And also, the dice has thrown another interesting complication the party's way. But that will have to wait until next time. So I hope you'll come back to Phantom Thoughts. Thank you for listening. The opening music of this podcast is Strength of the Titans, and the closing music is Late Night Radio both by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 License. Thank you for listening to Phantom Thoughts. I would love to hear your feedback. You don't have to be part of the show. If you want to contact me and let me know, hey, these are for your eyes only. I just wanted to give you thoughts, ideas, response, and it's really for your eyes or ears only. That's absolutely fine. I'd love to hear from you either way. So just let me know when you contact me. Just, I don't want to be part of the show. There are lots of different ways you can contact me. You can send me an email at phantomthoughtspodcast at gmail.com. And that can be a regular email, or you can attach an audio file to it. You can use the message button on my podcast site on podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash phantom thoughts you can contact me via my google voice number 864-209-1441 you can contact me via speakpipe at www.speakpipe.com 
slash phantom thoughts. You can contact me on Discord, The Pink Phantom. All this contact information is listed in the show notes of every episode. And thank you for those who call in. Thank you for those who don't call in. I appreciate you listening and hope you'll listen again next time. Until then, I hope you have a great day.